We've been continuing going through the Gospel of Mark, and so we are going to find ourselves in chapter 6 this morning at at the beginning. Uh, Chapter 6, verses 1 through the beginning of of 6. And before we we come to reading, before we come to the preaching of God's Word, let's pray. Uh, We need God's Spirit here to be uh, moving with the Word, to be opening our hearts, opening our ears and our understandings to hearing what He has to say to us. Lord God, we need your word for us to live. It is our bread. It is our sustenance. It alivens us. It sustains us. And so we pray that as we come again to hearing your word, that you would do that with us. That you would show us here the ways that that we need your grace in new new parts of our lives and new parts of our hearts. Continue to to show us our, our shortcomings to, see us the be- to, to show us the beauty of Jesus and train us then to be people who love you more and uh, have a deeper faith and a belief in you. In your, Jesus' name, amen. Well, consider though first the context of the events in Mark that we've heard over the last few weeks leading up to this point here. It's been the slow and steady progression related to understanding Jesus and then believing in him. Seeing Jesus, truly seeing him, beginning to comprehend that there is something special, that there is even something divine about him, and then acknowledging him in faith. Uh, We we kind of have seen this progression beginning with Jesus calming of the storm and the the waves on on the sea at the the end of chapter 4. And the disciples, it says, were even more afraid of Jesus than they were than in the storm. And they ask, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? He's the Lord over creation. And then they land, and he casts out the legion of demons that's in the man and into the herd of pigs. And we see that he's the Lord over the demons. He's Lord over both the seen and the unseen realms. And then the past two weeks then... We see that he heals the unwell woman, and he resurrects Jairus' daughter. He's the Lord not only over sickness, but he's also the Lord over death. And in all of these events here, on all these accounts, the witnesses to Jesus' remarkable acts of power, the witnesses are given a glimpse of who he is. And they respond in some act of faith to this deeper understanding of him. If you remember from last week, what what were those words that Jesus said to Jairus? Do not fear, only believe. And now we're going to see Jesus coming back to his hometown. The people who knew him ever since he was a child. Uh, They knew him for, they've known him for 30 years. And so here's the understanding and the faith that they have in him now. Let's read about that. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1. This is the word of God. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him there were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor 
except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Amen. In one sense, it's like coming home from college. Either the first time, maybe over winter break, or maybe after graduation, or if you haven't gone to college, just simply leaving home or, and then coming back at some point later. And in those early years of, of young adult life, there's a lot of transformation that takes place in those times. And then the classic scenario often unfolds. You've become a new person. You've been exposed to new ideas, a new people. You form new habits, new lives, new tastes, new styles. And even just the simple reality of having to do things on your own. And you've acquired new knowledge, new skills, and you return home a new and different person than you were before. And yet these are the people who have always known you. They knew you before you left home. They knew you when you were young, for better or for worse. And in a way, that's the lens that they look through at you. They always look at you like that. And in some cases, yeah, that's the way that they will always see you. And if you come back with some new clothes or new style than you had before, so why are you dressing like that? You've learned some new things in school. You've learned some new things in life. So you've gone off and gotten smart, huh? Remember how smart you were when you did that one thing before? And now here's Jesus coming back to his old home, seeing new rel- his old relatives, seeing his old friends, the people who watched him grow up, the neighbor kids he played with, the older generation who taught him in the synagogue. And in one sense, he was the same. He was still the same son of God in human flesh, though they hadn't been able to see that before. But they were able to see how he, how he manifested that through his perfect, holy, holy living. He'd always been the odd one to the point of making them uncomfortable as true holiness does. But he'd also always been the perfectly loving one. And now he, so he was the same Jesus, but he was also different. He was now different in his formal calling. No longer was he just the carpenter, but he was the Messiah. He was the Christ, the anointed one into his earthly ministry. He left home a blue collar man. But now he returns with disciples following after him, like an educated rabbi or a teacher would. And he comes assuming the role of a prophet. The prophets spoke upon the authority of God. They were the mouthpieces of God when they announced, Thus says the Lord. And he was a man who came home here with the highest authority, as a man who had shown himself over and over um, to, to be this authority by the signs and the miracles that he performed And Jesus comes home, he returns to his old people, and he faces the same sort of welcome as the young adult returning home from college. A deflating rejection. They don't understand him. They don't see what he's been up to. They can't recognize or look past the man that they've always known to see who he really is here, or the majestic importance of his ministry. And because they've always known him, his past follows him. Not a past things that filled with things to be ashamed about. I mean, no one has dirt on the Son of God. But the Son of God, though, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And yet that's not how it appeared to them in their eyes. In their eyes, he was an illegitimate child. 
And here he comes with all sorts of followers and disciples, just like a rabbi, just like a learned scholar would. But Jesus, you're just a carpenter. You're the son of a carpenter. You're a blue-collar man from a blue-collar family. Why are you coming back all smart and fancy? Shouldn't they have known better? Of course they should have. For one thing, it's not fair to judge someone based upon their past, either positively or negatively. But there were particularly, though, two pitfalls that these people fell prey to when they considered Jesus and his return back to them. Overfamiliarity and unbelief. And as we consider those in the hearts and minds of the people of Nazareth, we also need to consider this. Where did this whole scene take place? Not in his hometown. Not just in his hometown. It happened in the synagogue. This wasn't only the the covenant community of God's people here. This was in church. When Jesus showed up, there should have been celebration at the hometown hero coming back to minister and demonstrate the kingdom among them. You've come to us. Oh, praise God. This is amazing. But instead, they treat him with derision. And certainly without the respect and the awe and the belief that he deserved. And again, this happened among God's covenant people. It happened in their worship service. And let's not be so arrogant to consider what warnings then this also gives to us. There are two warnings that we see. The ones that I mentioned before. Overfamiliarity and unbelief. And the first one there, overfamiliarity with Jesus. You all heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. What's that mean? Essentially, it's the more that we are familiar with something, or particularly somebody, the more we see the blemishes and the shortcomings. How often is that true with people? The people that we are most acquainted with, the people that we, we see so frequently, the more that we see them in all of their negatives and flaws. And they might, in our eyes, lose the wonder and awe that, that others might have towards them. Or they lose the luster, maybe, that they once had in our own eyes. And these people knew Jesus for most of his life. For the first 30 years of his life before he was called to embark upon his formal earthly ministry, there he was living among these people. They knew how he lived. They knew his upbringing. They knew how he learned the carpentry trade from Joseph, his dad. And and maybe he had even taken on that family business also. They knew Mary, his mother. They knew all of his brothers and sisters And they were familiar with all the rumors of his parentage, which is alluded to in verse 3. Is this this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? There's no mention of Joseph. They knew all the rumors about how Mary became pregnant during her betrothal to Jesus and their marriage then. These were the people among whom the scandal and the rumors had passed through like waves. And who had held in the back of their minds that Jesus was either conceived out of wedlock by Joseph or was an illegitimate child by some other man. And yet they knew, also knew this though, they knew his blameless living and righteousness. From the youngest ages to the early childhood where you expect to see our own human sinfulness come out. And then into his teens where it shows itself in whole new ways also. But they had witnessed how the incarnate Son of God lived among real and fallen people on the earth. Though they didn't quite know all who he was, just that there was something about him that made them uncomfortable. 
but yet strangely compelled them. And now Jesus, he returns back to his hometown and all the, the buzz, all the reports of his ministry throughout the greater region, and especially here in the surrounding area of Galilee, it had reached their ears. And everyone knew of his healings. Everyone knew of the works of divine power that he had been doing. Everyone knew about the teachings and the authority with which he had taught. And you have to wonder what they thought. Hey guys, have you heard of Jesus, this guy, and all that he's doing? Yeah, we know the guy. We're familiar with him. And then so when Jesus comes back, what are you doing? What have you been up to? Where did you get this teaching and this wisdom? How are you doing these things? Because, you know, we never quite saw you doing this stuff like before. And we know that you're just a carpenter. And we're even suspicious about who your dad might be. So what are you doing? And most tragically, in verse 3, it says they took offense at him. Here they thought they knew everything about him. But they couldn't see who he really was. Even if they they would have reflected back upon those 30 years on how he lived among them. Who was he? He was just a stumbling block to to their belief. Now we talk about Jesus a whole lot. We do as Christians. We do here at CVP. We preach about Jesus. It doesn't matter if we're in the New Testament or the Old Testament. We preach about Jesus. We reference Jesus and his person and his work all through our worship services. His kingship, his grace and mercy for sinners at the cross, his resurrection and his ascension where he is right now. We come to his table every week. We pray in his name We pray in the ways that he taught us how to pray. We teach about how he's the source of our standing before God, the Father, by faith. And how he is also the source of our growth in holiness by the Spirit. We get plenty of Jesus' exposure. We're very familiar with Jesus. And that is not a problem. Not one bit. So don't hear me wrong on this. We can't make too much of Jesus. We ought to talk about him a lot. But the problem may not be that we talk about him a lot, but how we talk about him. Because we can do so in a way that takes him for granted. It's possible to be so familiar with Jesus that we forget the beauty and the wonder of him. Have we become so accustomed to him that, he, that we've become overfamiliar with him? Now, we'd never say it, but it's almost like we think we we have him mastered. We know the doctrines of Christ on paper. We know what our theology says about the atonement and so on and so on. We're good on that. Have we become, though, so numb to the glory of Jesus? Have we become too familiar with him that he doesn't move the needle for us anymore? Do we think that we've got him pretty well figured out? Or that perhaps it's time to move on to something else. The Apostle Paul didn't. After spending 11 chapters of Romans talking about the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ for blind, lost sinners, he writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. Now maybe you've heard the joke before. There's a a Sunday school teacher who's getting her class together and all these boys and girls are sitting around the table and she says, okay class, 
What lives on a farm and gives milk? No answer. Everyone just kind of sits there with their hands in their lap. Okay, it also has horns and it eats grass. And there's still no answer from any of the kids sitting around the Sunday school table. Finally, she just goes, it says moo. There's no answer still. Everyone just kind of looks at each other awkwardly until this little boy raises his hand slowly. Yes, little Jimmy, please. What is the answer? He says, well, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sounds awfully like a cow. But does that answer expose something in our hearts? Do we just say Jesus as the classic and expected answer because that's what it has to be? Yet we haven't thought about the why or the how or the implications or the beauty or the awe. We just assume Jesus. Remember, this was happening among God's outwardly covenant people. This was happening at the synagogue. Apply this to our context. What does that look like? A church that knows about and talks about Jesus a whole lot, but without the wonder and awe that he deserves. What's a church like that look like? First, a people among whom grace just doesn't seem to be quite so amazing. Where Jesus' grace and mercy is taken for granted because our own sin and our own sinfulness and our broken states aren't seen as God sees them. And their depth doesn't go as deep as God knows them to be. If we have a surface-level understanding of our sin, then we will only have a surface-level understanding of Jesus and his work, and we will only have then a surface-level appreciation and love for him. For Jesus to be just that amazing, our sinfulness needs to be just that damning, and our inability to be just that pitiful. Second, if it shows up in a people whose hearts aren't broken by sin or see the cross as it should be, conversely, though, it also shows up in a heart that is broken by sin but doesn't see the cross of Christ as it should be and is racked by guilt. Now, there's some obvious bleed over here with the amazingness of grace, but it doesn't see Jesus as really being just that good. That he really has taken the sins of his people. He really has set us free from bondage to our sinful desires. That he really does give spiritual orphans a home in the presence of a heavenly father. And he has really given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But a people who are overly familiar with Jesus are instead racked with guilt and live despondently. Because they have failed to understand their sin is nailed to the cross. And instead they try to tear it back down and put it upon themselves once more. Third, it's a church that doesn't take his words to heart or take them as seriously as they ought to be. Discipleship has real demands. It listens to what Jesus says and with intent. It doesn't try to explain them away or just simply blow them off, but it takes them seriously. What he says about holiness, about being a countercultural people, about not ceding to our own desires and giving up our lives for him and for being enlisted into his kingdom and for his service. And fourth, in a related way, it's a church that's unwilling to carry the cross that he has put upon us. 
We don't walk along a triumphant life, but a way of suffering just as he did. In the words of Martin Luther in the ways that he wrote, we follow him along the way of the cross. Being overly familiar with Jesus doesn't take this as seriously as it ought. Sure, we say that following Jesus involves suffering. But do we follow him in that suffering? Do we take it on? Do we even embrace it? And then fifth and finally, it settles for a knowledge of him that it already has and is content, and, and is content to plumb his depths no further. If Jesus really is as deep and as beautiful and full of awe as he is, and as we say that he is, then why would we not keep dropping our buckets over and over, further and further down into the well of his understanding? Right? We need water, and he's got very deep water. He has inexhaustible water. And if we take that seriously, if we love him as much as we say we do, then why would we be content with just a familiarity and then say we're done? But he ought to be a craving. I just can't get enough because every time I dip my bucket down further into his deep waters, I am amazed and I am in total awe of what I find. So we have there first over-familiarity with Jesus. But though we have also then second, the other one, unbelief in Jesus. And we read of the, the people's reaction here, their unbelief. But now we hear of Jesus as, as the focus is turned upon his response to them. And he marvels at them, not in a positive way. It's actually quite the opposite. He marvels at their unbelief. The Greek word for marvel can be a positive or negative based upon the context. And it's pretty clear here, based upon the context, that it's not a pleasant surprise, but that he is disturbed by their reaction. And their reaction is an unbelief like he hasn't seen so far. Again, they've known him. They've seen his life. They should have recognized his holiness. They knew that he didn't come from a learned family. So how did he get all of this knowledge and wisdom? It wasn't acquired from school or from training. He left and came back within a year speaking and teaching like this. What else could it be than from divine origin? And then couple that with the signs that he performed. Yet still, they don't believe. And Jesus looks at all this and he shakes his head. This is a stubborn, obstinate, and blind unbelief. And it's so deep that Mark tells us something curious. He says that Jesus wasn't able to perform many miracles there. It's not because he didn't possess the power. He wasn't limited in his power or ability, but rather, though, according to one commentator, I quote, he wasn't free to exercise his power in these circumstances. He wasn't limited in his power. But his signs were done as those came to him believed and had some sort of faith or some sort of belief. Minimally, a belief that he could do something. But here, none of these people seemed to believe in the least bit. They only had questions or they only second-guessed what he was doing. They didn't show any faith or any belief in what he was doing. And so thus, Jesus wasn't performing signs of his kingdom that are received by faith. He wasn't going to raise some sort of spectacle in town for them to witness. He hadn't rolled in here to make some sort of show, but it was for the purpose of demonstrating the reality of his kingdom, the kingdom of God, 
and a kingdom of wholeness. But they were unwilling to believe and they were unable to see. And if he had even done some works of power, it would have only resulted in further hardening them. You can give someone all the clearest evidence from from the most well-established reasoning, but apart from a heart that is moved by the Spirit of God, it will not work. And when we consider unbelief, generally our thoughts go immediately to those who are outside of the church. But unbelief isn't just something to consider that's out there. It's also a problem for those within the church as well. Again, this was the covenant community of God here. These weren't religious outsiders. They were well acquainted with the promises given by God in the Old Testament. But still, they didn't believe even when everything was right in front of them. And it ought to cause us to reflect upon ourselves. Do we believe in the promises of God found in Jesus? Do we believe that those that, do we believe those that he himself gave to his church? The promise is to continue to grow it, to fill it with people from every nationality, ethnicity, and walk of life. The promise that he gave for it to someday triumph and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do we believe his purposes in history, that he has promised to make all things subservient to him and make it all his footstool? That he is redeeming all things, even among suffering and heartache. Do we entrust ourselves to him and his care? Do we believe in his authority and acknowledge that authority above our own notions of of authority or our own desires? See, Jesus didn't perform his works of power where there was unbelief. And wherever unbelief runs, there is also where Jesus' power is stunted. It's cut off. And it happened at the synagogue in Jesus' hometown. And it still happens in the church today. A church that persists in unbelief is a church devoid of Jesus' power. And what's that look like? Well, first, a people who are deprived of Christ's power among them in the Spirit. If there is unbelief in Jesus, then his spirit, the spirit of Christ Jesus, the spirit in which he ministered and did such signs, doesn't work there. And if there's no spirit at work in a church, then that's a church without any power. No power in holiness, no power in its worship, no power in its evangelism, no power in its gifting, in mercy. You can go on and on. Unbelief in Jesus is the death blow to a thriving church and ministry. Second, though, an unbelieving church has no expectancy that God will powerfully work among them. It's not only that the power of Christ and the the, the Spirit isn't seen among them, but no one expects that God will actually do so. When it gathers, it only does so merely out of habit rather than conviction or hope. When it worships, it it doesn't do so expecting that God will actually show up and that his spirit will do his recreative work. When the word is proclaimed, it doesn't understand that the norm is for people to grow in faith and even for people to come to faith. A church that doesn't believe in Jesus' promises doesn't believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. 
Right? Jesus is resurrected, right? Where is he? He's right now at the right hand of God the Father because Jesus is alive, because Jesus is resurrected, because Jesus is on the throne is why we can have every hope. It's why we can be expectant that, that when we come together, God, by his spirit, is with us and God will do things. That makes every difference for how you and I go about our lives regularly in the church for how we live as disciples, and for what we can expect God to do in his church. And third, an unbelieving church is a prayerless church. What is prayer? Prayer is coming before God, anticipating that he hears our requests and our needs, and he'll do something with them. It's a posture of humility and an honest and believing expression that, on, that he can only can provide for us. And that also includes here for the church. An unbelieving church is a prayerless church because by not praying, and that's both individually but also together, corporately, it implicitly dismisses God's power to uphold the church and to cause it to thrive, but it also denies his willingness to do so. Jesus came and he died for the church. Of course he loves it. And he wants its best for its flourishing. He wants the church to come and to pray together. We pray together in the name of Jesus. Not a Jesus who is just dead. A Jesus again. Who is risen. Who is at the right hand of God the Father. We pray to a raised Jesus Christ. And a church that doesn't pray has cut itself off from the desires that Jesus has for it. And the spirit of power then that he gave to it. And fourth and finally, a powerless church is cold. Because the power of Christ in the spirit shows itself anemically. Its worship is cold. There's no fire. And cold worship isn't non-emotiveness. Cold worship is worship done without the whole person. It's emotiveness without intellect Or, on the other hand, intellect without heart. It's the mind without the body or the body without engaging the mind. Warmth in worship engages the whole person because we are created as as whole people and we are saved as whole people, body and soul. And a warm worship understands that. It expresses itself in joy and awe in this Jesus. A cold church doesn't burn with the joy of Jesus Christ who came to save sinners. It is a church that takes grace for granted. It's a church that doesn't burn with a zeal for holiness. It is a church that is cool towards the idea of being proactive with the good news of the gospel and holds it close instead. When people encounter the church of Jesus, they ought to feel the warmth of his flesh in our flesh. And the the fire of the Spirit enlivening us. We have a church overly familiar with Jesus, yet without awe. And we read of a church here that claims Jesus, but without deep belief in the resurrected Christ and his power. Ultimately, such a church is ineffective for the kingdom. Because its heart hasn't been gripped by the beauty and majesty of Jesus. How can a church that fails to understand that reasonably hold out hope? Disciples follow Jesus, and that's the same path that he walked. 
When his followers have the heavy, the, the heavy cross of Christ laid upon them to carry with all of its burdens and suffering and trials, what is it that will sustain them? It has to come down to Jesus. We follow him in our belief. We look to him. We understand his coming as deeply as we can. And then we take hold of him in faith. In verse 4, Jesus says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, except in those who know him. Jesus followed the same prophetic tradition as those before him who spoke the word of the Lord to the people, the tradition of being rejected. Words that they didn't like because they offended their sensibilities, and so the, the prophets were repeatedly rejected by the people to whom they were sent. And the same thing would happen to Jesus. Rejected not only by his relations and his old family friends, but by the people whom he came to save. It was rejection that the prophets themselves spoke of. This same one here that they spoke of in advance. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 writes that this one, this Jesus here, would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And it goes on to describe how he would be pierced and crushed for our sins in order to bring us peace with God. See, Jesus came as a prophet in that he spoke the word of God, also being the, 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 the son of God, being the very word of God. But he's so much more than just a prophet. His suffering on the cross was redemptive. He was rejected so that lost unbelievers might be brought into belief. That their sins, even the sins of failing to believe him or to believe how good he really is, would be done away. A cross and a savior and a plan that we can never grow weary with if we continue to plumb its depths, study it intently, and see ourselves in the shadow of this Jesus. And although we come each week to the Lord's table, to the table of Jesus Christ, let's also not get overly familiar with it. Because each week Jesus feeds us with himself. He gives us signs and seals of his promises to us. And we see his body and blood. We hold the truths of the gospel and we take them into us as we eat by faith. Friends, does that astonish us? Does that blow us away? that Jesus would continue to feed our belief that ought to. And so let's come to him then very shortly at this table with awe, with belief, and with faith. Let's pray. Jesus, it it is so easy when you are all around us to become overly familiar with who you are. Forgive us for the times that we may have have done that. It's easy then for us to live functionally in unbelief, that we live unbelieving the, the, the deep promises or the full depth of the promises that you have given to us and that our lives are not lived by those or motivated in those. Forgive us of those. And awaken us then, God. Awaken us so that let us burn hot as we further see who you are, Jesus, and further continue to receive you with a gladness and with a joy. And let us do so for your glory. And let us do so now when we, as we come to the table and prepare us for that. We pray this, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.